Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters from the past. Now today we're going to focus on Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century leader of a monastic movement and uh, a leader in a movement known as Christian mysticism. Now that word mysticism uh, has a lot of bad connotations and some of them are deserved. Uh, Some of the mystics that are even alive today are uh, do really just like an Eastern religion form of meditation that's not based on any spiritual truth, but just seeking some kind of experience through meditation, etc. Uh, but for us as Christians, we need to understand that there is a strong biblical basis for the kinds of experience that some of our brothers and sisters have had of intimacy with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the most electrifying books that I've ever read in my life Uh, I got in seminary when I was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. It was written by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It was called Joy Unspeakable. Of course, that phrase, Joy Unspeakable, uh, comes from 1 Peter 1, where it talks about the fact that though we have not seen Christ, we love Him and are filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And his thesis in that book is that uh, from time to time, key leaders in church history have had overwhelming experiences of intimacy and closeness uh, with God and with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he argues in that book specifically that these experiences empowered them for for Christian service, especially in evangelism and missions. And some of the testimonies that he gave just blew me away uh, because of who it was that had had these experiences. Uh, People like Jonathan Edwards and some of these great uh, Puritan leaders and, and D.L. Moody and others that had testimonies of assurance or of intimacy with Christ. And he buttressed it, Lloyd-Jones did, with uh, scriptures such as Romans 5.5 that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' account in his personal narrative of an experience like this was just amazing to me. Edwards writes this, As I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, pure, full, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conceptions, which continued, as near as I can judge, about an hour, such as to keep me a greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be, what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love Him with a holy and pure love, to trust in Him, to live upon Him, to serve Him and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a heavenly purity. That's just an amazing account. If you had stumbled upon Jonathan Edwards that day in 1737, you would have seen him lying on the ground in the forest weeping. 
almost like he wasn't there, but he was there. And his wife, Sarah Edwards, had an even more amazing experience that she wrote about in one of her documents, a personal narrative. And this is what Sarah Edwards wrote. I was entirely swallowed up in God as my only portion, and his honor and glory was the object of my supreme desire and delight. At the same time, I felt a far greater love to the children of God than ever before. I continued in a sweet and lively sense of divine things until I retired to rest. That night, which was Thursday night, January 28th, was the sweetest night I ever had in my life. I never before, for so long a time together, enjoyed so much of the light and rest and sweetness of heaven in my soul, but without the least agitation of body during the whole time. The great part of the night I lay awake, sometimes asleep, sometimes between sleeping and waking. But all night I continued in a constant, clear, and lively sense of the heavenly sweetness of Christ's excellent and transcendent love, of his nearness to me and of my dearness to him, with an inexpressibly sweet calmness of soul in an entire rest in him. There seemed to be a constant flowing and reflowing of heavenly and divine love from Christ's heart to mine, and I appeared to myself to float or swim in these bright, sweet beams of the love of Christ, like dust specks swimming in the beams of the sun or the streams of his light which come in at the window. My soul remained in a kind of heavenly Elysium. So far as I am capable of making a comparison, I think that what I felt each minute during the continuance of that whole time was worth more than all the outward comfort and pleasure which I had enjoyed in my whole life put together. It was a pure delight which fed and satisfied the soul. It was pleasure without the least sting or any interruption. It was a sweetness which my soul was lost in. It seemed to be all that my feeble frame could sustain of that fullness of joy which is felt by those who behold the face of Christ and share his love in the heavenly world. Now, when I read those accounts and a similar one by D.L. Moody in which he said, I had such an experience with God that I had to ask him to stay his hand. It was so overwhelming. I think to myself, is something like that even possible? Biblical answer, yes and yes. Uh, is it commonplace? Not at all. Is it helped by the term mysticism? I don't think so. But the fact that God does have the power to pour out into our hearts a sense of his love for us is both possible and desirable, and Lloyd-Jones would say should be sought. Well, how is it sought? Well, Bernard McGinn has done a couple of, of volumes, actually multiple volumes now on Christian mysticism, the history of mysticism. He defines it uh, in this way. It's the preparation for the consciousness of and reaction to the immediate or direct presence of God. Preparation for, he, he calls it really a process, a whole way of life, resulting in an experience or a sense of union with God that is different than and deeper than any ordinary sense that God's people have of these things. And it's a preparation for a consciousness of this immediate direct presence of God and then a reaction to it. That's how he defines mysticism. And contemplatives or contemplation, meditation, um, 
uh, contemplatives, people who do this, spend time seeking the face of God through scriptural meditation and prayer, sometimes fasting, other disciplines, they set themselves apart to do this. Now, this whole thing seems strange to us in the 21st century. Uh, Western Christians, uh, we are used to uh, efficiency, we're used to technology, and frankly, we're used to superficiality. Uh, we're used to praying a sinner's prayer and going to church, and that's about it. The saints of old may well have something to teach us about seeking intimacy with Christ. And Bernard of Clairvaux may be one of the greatest examples. Let's talk about who this man was, Bernard of Clairvaux. And I want to begin by giving you my own connection with Bernard. Um, my PhD dissertation was on John Calvin's eschatology, his study of future things. Uh, Calvin was a meticulous scholar, obviously, precise exegete of scripture, accurate builder of the city of truth uh, through sound theology, line upon line. That's who he was. I don't think anyone listening to me or that I could ever have a higher view of scripture than John Calvin did. Uh, I was not surprised at all to find out that in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, his great work of systematic theology, Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other non-sacred writer. So Augustine was number one. But what did surprise me, I never saw this coming, was number two was Bernard of Clairvaux. That John Calvin cited Bernard more than anyone else. Calvin loved Bernard for his combination of sound scriptural reasoning with passionate Christian meditation. So I felt that I could trust Bernard of Clairvaux as a fair, faithful guide. Not perfect, but faithful. It wasn't until I read Bernard McGinn's two-volume set on Christian mysticism that I realized how deep was the stream of mysticism, how complex to understand what it was. And it led me to the chapter on Bernard of Clairvaux and to understanding his views. So who was this man, Bernard of Clairvaux? Well, he was a 12th century Christian uh, leader. He was born in the year 1090 and died in the year 1153. He was a complex individual and challenging to understand. On the one hand, his skill in words, in preaching, and writing led others to call him Dr. Mellifluous, uh, the honey-tongued doctor. Uh, it led women, interestingly, to, hide, to try to hide their sons and their husbands from him whenever he came to town because he was so skillful at recruiting, some would even say seducing, men into the monastic lifestyle that the women didn't want, want him around. He was just so good at it. Uh, he was skillful at recruiting people into that life. His meditations on loving God are among the most moving in the history of all Christianity. But on the other hand, interestingly, he preached passionately the Second Crusade. You think about the Crusade movement, what an embarrassment it has been in the history of Christianity. And Bernard was right in the middle of it, preaching it. Uh, he urged Christian men to take up arms and go to the Holy Land and kill Muslims for the glory of God. On the other hand, he was passionate about the humble life, the life of the ascetic, the life of the monk, opposed to the worldly life, a life of simplicity. Yet, on the other hand there, he was very close to the seat of power in Western Christendom. He was advisor to five popes, and he was so influential that one of the popes, who had been one of his students, said to him, most people think you are the real pope and that I'm merely your figurehead. So he was very much mixed into the politics of church state of his day. He was so humble and kind-hearted in interactions with others, yet he vigorously fought the doctrinal eccentricities of Peter Abelard, uh, who we'll talk about later, using shrewd politics with the pope and with other Roman Catholic leaders. 
so as to ensure Peter Abelard's defeat and exile into a monastery. For these complex contradictions, some have called him a difficult saint. Bernard was so gifted, so winsome in personality, so powerful in speech and example, and he was so energetic uh, that he, he did nothing by half measures that he would almost certainly have been successful no matter what career he chose. He could have been a crusading warrior. He could have been a poet in a king's court. He could have been a politician or a statesman uh, leading a nation state in medieval Europe. He could have been all those things, but what he chose to be was the abbot of a monastery and to preach and serve and write to the end that everyone he encountered would be led to love God with all of their hearts, souls, minds, and their strength. He was probably one of the most gifted writers of Latin of, medieval, uh, of the medieval age. He was eloquent and moving in his words, uh, so much so that it caused people to melt and to be moved. He wrote exquisite Latin. Bernard McGinn said, among Latin authors of the Middle Ages, Bernard might possibly have equals, but surely no superiors. The sumptuous elegance of his Latin, his genius at alternating soaring passages of complex sentences with then terse epigrammatic formulations that would quickly, efficiently summarize key points, what we would call today sound bites. He was good at both. He was a powerful writer. As I said, he was born in the year 1090, uh, not quite a thousand years ago, in a small village on the outskirts of Dijon in Burgundy, modern-day France. His parents were virtuous, pious Christians of lower-level nobility, uh, but it was his mother who exerted the strongest influence on him, um, second among perhaps famously influential mothers in Western Christianity to Monica, the mother of Augustine, similar to John Chrysostom's mother as well as we studied earlier. Heaven alone will reveal the full harvest of glory that goes to such godly Christian mothers. When Bernard's mother died in the year 1107, when Bernard was uh, 17 years old, it started Bernard on the long uh, journey, the, the road to genuine conversion through faith in Christ. Bernard had received an excellent classical education, especially in Latin writing and rhetoric, which would serve him well his whole life. Uh, in the year 1113, uh, at the age of 23, after a period of careful planning and recruiting of 25 friends and relatives to accompany him, he entered the poor and struggling monastery, new monastery of Citeaux. Um, the monastic movement there were called the Cistercians. Uh, that's a Latin way of saying Citeaux there in France. Uh, there in this monastery, he studied the life of a monk, including uh, beginning a pattern of lifelong uh, asceticism, extreme fasting from food and sleep, which ended up severely impairing his health. And this is a regular story in church history. Uh, he had problems uh, his whole life with ga gastritis, with anemia, migraine headaches, hypertension, and a reduced sense of taste. Uh, that monastery uh, was part of the movement, as I said, called the Cistercians, who were trying to, um, to restore to purity an er earlier um, Benedictine monk following the pattern of Benedict uh, and try to, to rectify it of some, um, some faults that had crept in. Bernard was very strict with the monks under his authority. Uh, he became abbot of one of these daughter monasteries that the Cistercians had planted. It was a very vigorous movement, especially under his leadership, and he became abbot the one, uh, of one of them, the one at Clairvaux, three years into his time as a monk. So he's a very gifted leader. And he had very little patience with other monasteries that seemed to care too much about food. Uh, he wrote mockingly about them, Quote, the cooks prepare everything with such skill and cunning 
that four or five dishes already consumed are no hindrance to what is about to follow, and their appetite is not checked by their stomachs being full. So he obviously was very down on that. On the other hand, he was very aware of the problem of spiritual pride among monks. He said, there are people who go clad in tunics and have nothing to do with furs who nevertheless are lacking in humility. Surely humility in furs is better than pride in monastic tunics. So he's very aware of the danger of spiritual pride even among monks. Under his leadership, the monastery of Clairvaux uh, prospered greatly. Um, they began to found daughter monasteries. Bernard founded 70 of them in his lifetime. That's basically like modern church planting movement. Uh, it would be his version of that. And then they founded over a hundred others. So monasteries that then founded other monasteries. Very fruitful. Uh, Bernard, uh, in his sermons for the dedication of a church, said this, what is more wonderful than when one who could scarcely for two days refrain from lust, from intoxication, drunkenness, wantonness, impurity, and other similar and dissimilar vices, now refrains from them for many years and even for life. What greater miracle than when so many youths, adolescents, nobles, all those I see here, are bound as in somewhat of an open prison without chains, riveted only by their fear of God in order to endure a penance so severe that it is beyond human power, above nature, out of the ordinary. What are these save evident proofs of the Holy Spirit living in you? The body's lively movements prove that the soul dwells there. Spiritual life and vitality proves that the Spirit dwells in the soul, the Holy Spirit. The former is recognized by sight and hearing. The latter is recognized from charity, humility, and other Christian virtues. It's a powerful message, isn't it? I mean, look around. Look at the transformed lives. Look at the way you're living. Speaking of the incarnation of Christ, and this was a very big theme with Bernard, he focused a lot on the bodily life of Christ, his incarnation, and the glory of God come to earth in the person of the incarnate Son of God. This is what he said. He, Christ, was incomprehensible and inaccessible, invisible and completely unthinkable. He means in his pre-incarnate state. Now he wishes to be comprehended, wishes to be seen, wishes to be thought about. How, you ask? As lying in the manger, as resting in the virgin's lap, as preaching on the mountain, praying through the night, or hanging on the cross, growing pale in death, rising on the third day, showing the apostles the place of the nails, the signs of victory, and then finally as ascending over heaven's secrets in their sight. So a very powerful sense of incarnation of what it was like to be with Jesus. He was very influential as he did this kind of writing and preaching. His influence grew and grew. His writing career began in the mid-1120s with his treatise, The Steps of Humility and Pride. His most significant theological work was on grace and free will, and his central mystical treatise was on loving God. And we're going to read some of that in uh, a few moments. His mystical masterpiece, however, was begun in the year 1135. It was Sermons on the Song of Songs. These were 86 sermons on the first three chapters of the biblical book, The Song of Songs. 
in which the poetical celebration of marital intimacy in that book was employed by Bernard and by other mystics to speak of a soul's ardent love for God. Keep in mind that in these uh, monasteries they had took uh, vows of celibacy. And so as they read Song of Songs, they were looking on it, obviously, as somewhat of a manual for healthy Christian marriage, but beyond that, of the mystery of Christ and his church. And they did a lot of meditation on that. And according to Bernard McGinn, the 86 sermons by Bernard of Clairvaux on the Song of Songs are among the supreme masterpieces in the entire history of Christian mysticism. As Bernard was doing all this writing and as his political influence grew and grew, he uh, personally longed to return to a life of solitude, for he had been a spiritual hermit for a while, but his sense of duty would not allow him to. He had to keep working and serving. Bernard maintained a warm relationship with other reforming movements of the time, and he wrote the rule for a new order of crusading warriors known as the Knights Templar, an order of men who took monastic-style oaths to defend the Holy Land militarily from the Muslims. It was Bernard who wrote their oaths. When influential and controversial theologian Peter Abelard began to push the boundaries of orthodoxy by his teachings, it was Bernard of Clairvaux who rose to fight him. Abelard wrote things like this, quote, It is by doubting that we come to inquire, and by inquiring that we reach the truth. So in other words, he's advocating continual doubting, which is never given very good reading in the, in the New Testament. Uh, his view, Abelard's view of the atoning death of Christ, was reduced to mere example. Sounds a lot like Pelagius, honestly. Christ did not die to pay the penalty for our sins, but rather to give an example of God's love. I remember my theological professor at Gordon-Conwell, Roger Nicole, talked about Abelard's example view of the atonement. And, and he used this illustration. Imagine, you know, he said, if Christ's death did not actually atone for sins by paying a penalty, but merely gives us an example of love. It would be as insane as a man who rushes to the scene of his neighbor's house engulfed totally in, in flames. Ask in the one condition, is everyone out safely? And the frenzy mother says, my baby is, is on the second floor and I can't get her out. And he courageously rushes into the burning house, runs upstairs, finds the baby, somehow manages to toss it down to some waiting arms below, and then the whole structure collapses on him and he dies. We would think that's a hero. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life to save someone else. Well, that makes sense. But suppose he comes, in a di different case, and finds out everyone's out safely. And he says, I'm going to give you an example of how much I love you. And then he rushes into the burning house and just stands there until the house comes down on his head. We would not think that's a display of love, but of insanity. And so much for Peter Abelard's view. Bernard shredded it and then did all the political work necessary to be sure that Abelard couldn't continue to teach false doctrines. Um, one of Bernard's former students was elected Pope, Eugenius III. And though Bernard had a very high view of the papacy, calling the Bishop of Rome as the unique vicar of Christ who presides over not merely a single people but over the whole world, he also, however, warned his former student, Eugenius, of the danger of a lust for power. He said, you have been entrusted with a stewardship over the world, not given possession of it. There is no poison more dangerous for you, no sword more deadly than the passion to rule. So he had a check and balance effect on Eugenius. But then, when Eugenius called for the Second Crusade, he recruited his old mentor, Bernard, as the chief preacher and spokesman for the effort. And Bernard went around all over that region um, preaching the Second Crusade. And when the Crusade ended badly, very badly, as inevitably it must, 
um, Bernard's reputation took a hit. However, 20 years after his death in the year 1153, died in the year 1153, 20 years later he was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. Now let's talk about Bernard as a guide for a deeper experience with God. Three hymns are in hymnals uh, that are ascribed to him that w uh, today, modern day hymnals. Jesus, the very thought of thee, and Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, and O sacred head now wounded. These are beautiful meditations on intimacy with Jesus and give a, a ready example of, of the intimacy he sought with Christ. Jesus, the very thought of thee, goes like this. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills the breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. No voice can sing, nor heart can frame, nor can the memory find a sweeter sound than Jesus' name, the Savior of mankind. And then, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, says this, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. Thy truth unchanged hath ever stood. Thou savest them that on thee call. To them that seek thee, thou art good. To them that find thee, all in all. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Our restless spirits yearn for thee, where'er our changeful lot is cast. Glad when thy gracious smile we see, blessed when our faith can hold thee fast. O Jesus, ever with us stay. Make all our moments calm and bright. Chase the dark night of sin away. Shed o'er the world thy holy light. These are powerful hymns, and I would commend you to look up in a hymnal these uh, three hymns and read them. Now, let's talk about his treatise on loving God, which he wrote around the year 1129. In the opening line, he says this, You want me to tell you why God is to be loved and how much? I answer, the reason for loving God is God himself, and the measure of love due to him is immeasurable love. Why should we love God? Well, we are to love God for himself because of a twofold reason. Nothing is more reasonable and nothing is more profitable. When one asks, why should I love God? He may mean, what is lovely about God? Or he may mean, what shall I gain by loving God? In either case, the same sufficient cause of love exists, namely God himself. That's just good stuff. You think about it, why should I love God? Two answers, because of who he is and because of what, how it benefits us. And both answers end up back in the same source, God himself. In chapter 7 of Unloving God, he talked about the reward of loving God. In other words, answering the question, what shall I gain or how shall I profit by loving God? He said this, For although God would be loved without respect of reward, yet he wills not to leave love unrewarded. True charity cannot be left destitute, even though she is unselfish and seeketh not her own. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love is an affection of the soul, not a contract. It cannot rise from a mere agreement, nor is it so to be gained. It is spontaneous in its origin and impulse. And true love is its own satisfaction. It has its reward, but that reward is the object beloved. For whatever you seem to love, if it is on account of something else, what you do really love is that something else, not the apparent object of desire. Paul did not preach the gospel that he might earn his bread. He ate 
that he might be strengthened for his ministry. What he loved was not bread, but the gospel. True love does not demand a reward, but it deserves one. Surely no one offers to pay for love, yet some recompense is due to the one who loves, and if his love endures, he will doubtless receive it. On a lower plane of action, it is the reluctant, not the eager, whom we urge by promises of reward. <laughs> who would think of paying a man to do what he was yearning to do already? For instance, no one would hire a hungry man to eat, or hire a thirsty man to drink, or a mother to nurse her own child. Who would think of bribing a farmer to dress his own vineyard, or to dig about his orchard, or rebuild his house? So all the more, one who loves God truly asks no other recompense than God himself. For if he should demand anything else, it would be the prize that he loved and not God. By the way, this is a good critique of the prosperity gospel, isn't it? Uh, uh, some time ago, I heard lyrics by a Christian recording artist named Shai Lin. He was talking about false teachers and the prosperity gospel. And he clicked into this. He didn't know he was connecting with Bernard of Clairvaux. But listen to what he said. Don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. And so I think that's the same kind of concept here. The reward of loving God is God himself. It can't be anything else. What is the problem with seeking things other than God? Well, they never satisfy. It is natural for a man to desire, said Bernard, what he reckons better than that which he has already, and be satisfied with nothing which lacks that special quality which he misses. Thus, if it is for her beauty that a man loves his wife, he will cast longing eyes after a fairer woman. If he is clad in a rich garment, he will covet a costly, costlier one. And no matter how rich he may be, he will envy a man richer than himself. Do we not see people every day endowed with vast estates who keep on joining field to field, dreaming of wider boundaries for their lands? Those who dwell in palaces are ever adding house to house, continually building up, tearing down, remodeling, changing. Men in high places are driven by insatiable ambition to clutch at still greater prizes. And nowhere is there any final satisfaction because nothing there can be defined as absolutely the best or highest in this world. But it is natural that nothing should content a man's desires but the very best as he reckons it. Is it not then mad folly always to be craving for things which can never quiet our longings, much less satisfy them? No matter how many such things one has, he's always lusting after what he does not yet have. He's never at peace. He sighs for new possessions. Discontented, he spends himself in fruitless toil and finds only weariness in the evanescent and unreal pleasures of the world. Now, if I'm an unbeliever hearing that kind of preaching and I've been going after money and power and all that, I'm going to stop and listen. It's very similar to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. I think Christian mystics went after that. They said, my soul wants to delight in God. I don't just want to have a logical assent that I am a Christian. I want to feel the love of God in my soul by the Spirit. And that's the best. It's based on Scripture. 
Now, Christ does satisfy, and he will satisfy for all eternity. And yet still, he leaves us longing for more while we live here in this world. Bernard wrote this, Even as the preacher says, and as the fool discovers, he that loves silver shall never be satisfied with silver. Ecclesiastes 5.10 But Christ says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5.6 Righteousness is the natural and essential food of the soil, soul, which can no more be satisfied by earthly treasure than the hunger of the body can be satisfied by air. If you should see a starving man standing with his mouth open to the wind, inhaling drafts of air, in the hope of gratifying his hunger, you'd think him a lunatic. But it is no less foolish to imagine that the soul can be satisfied with worldly things, which only inflate it without feeding it. But Christ gives himself as prize and reward. He is the refreshment of a holy soul, the ransom of those in captivity. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, Lamentations 3.25. What will he be then to those who gain his presence? But here's a paradox that no one can seek the Lord who has not already found him. It is thy will, O God, to be found that thou mayest be sought, and to be sought that thou mayest more truly be found. So in this world, we seek, we find, and yet want still more. And that's what Paul talks about in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what lies ahead. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So there's ever more to be found in Christ. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about with Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, there's more studies that we could do. But I want to give this uh, example to you uh, of seeking a deeper, fuller, richer experience with God uh, through personal holiness, putting sin to death, turning away from worldliness, and devoting yourself to scriptural meditation and prayer in this healthy pattern. And so as we close today, I want to in encourage you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be. And He has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to His eternal kingdom. So just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for His glory in their day, do the same in yours by the power of His Spirit for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.